job. Now, certainly I'm partial to this one, uh, but they were really good. And what a wonderful message as we continue through the Advent season, coming through with the skits. I'm going to invite children to be dismissed to junior church at this point. You may make your way to junior church. And as they make their way to junior church, you can turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we're going to continue here in just a moment with our third sermon, focusing on who Jesus is. You know, as we focus on gift giving, you know, one thing we do at Christmas season, of course, is we, we share gifts and we give gifts. There was a woman, I heard about her, uh, she, she told her husband one morning, she said, I don't, I, I had this dream last night and in the dream, and in the dream, I dreamed that I opened a package and within that package, there was a diamond ring in the package. And she asked her husband, what do you think that means? And he said, I don't know. Maybe tonight you'll find out. She waited all day long with great anticipation. And that evening, he gave her a wrapped package, a box, and it was wrapped. And, and she opened the package with great anticipation, thinking that dream was prophetic. She unwraps it, takes a bow off, opens the package. And within that package, there was a book, How to Interpret Dreams. <laughs> it's not a diamond ring, not at all. I want to begin this sermon with some background to just a beloved Christmas carol. You may know of the carol, all Come, oh, um, oh, Come All Ye Faithful, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. And I have some background about it. If you see in Luke chapter 2, verse 15 and verse 20, it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So that's the, the shepherds, they go to Bethlehem to worship the Christ child. The songs of the Christmas season comprise some of the finest music known to man. And this hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, is certainly one of the universal favorites. It was used in Catholic churches before it, was beca- before it became known to Protestants. Today it is sung by church groups around the world, since it has been translated from the original Latin into more than 100 other language, languages. The vivid imagery of the carol seems to have meaning and appeal for all ages and every culture. The original Latin text consisted of four stanzas. The first calls us to visualize anew the infant Jesus in Bethlehem stable. The second stanza is usually omitted in most hymnals, but it reminds us that the Christ child is very God himself. The Christ child is very God himself. It reads in the second stanza, God of God and light of light, begotten, low, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. The next stanza pictures for us the exalted song of the angelic choir heard by the lowly shepherds. Then the final verse offers praise and adoration to the word, our Lord, who is with the Father from the beginning of time. For many years, this hymn was known as an anonymous Latin hymn. Recent research, however, has revealed manuscripts that indicate that it was written in 1744 by an English layman named John Wade, and it was set to music by him in much the same style as used today. The hymn first appeared in his collection, Cantus Diversi, published in England in 1751. 
100 years later, the carol was translated into its present English form by an Anglican minister, Frederick Oakley, who desired to use it for his congregation. The tune, name, Adeste Fidelis, is taken from the first words of the original Latin text and and translated literally means, be present or near, ye faithful. O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, sing all ye bright hosts of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Well, Jesus did come down and he came down to our level. We needed help. We needed a savior. Jesus became one of us to live the life we could not live, to die the death we could not die. And I want to show you today that Jesus is the ruler. I want to show you that Jesus is now reigning as king of kings and Lord of lords. Lastly, I want to ask if he's your king. First, we're going to return to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We talked about that verse three weeks ago, that passage. And then we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, and a couple other passages in the epistle of Hebrews about Jesus reigning as our mediator, Jesus interceding for us, Jesus as our Savior. We've been talking about who Jesus is. Three weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' eternal past. Our beliefs of who Jesus is begin in the Old Testament, not the New Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as fully man and fully God. Jesus, fully man and fully God. And he had to be fully man and fully God to be the perfect substitute for our sins. And I know that you're asking, why does this matter? And here's why it matters. Because generally, those who stray from the faith, we would call them cults. They stray in their belief of Jesus. They take away the divinity of Jesus or they take away the humanity of Jesus. Jesus came fully human and fully God and he had to be fully human and fully God to be the perfect substitute for our sins. Today, I wanna show that Jesus is reigning with God in heaven. He's making intercession for us. We call this his session. He's interceding for us at the throne of God. We have a savior in heaven interceding on our behalf and that is just awesome. So I wanna read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says he, and that's referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is a powerful passage about the deity of Jesus. We see that Christ is the creator, the sustainer, and the ruler. Though we never see the noun ruler used in relation to Christ in this passage, this passage is all about Christ as ruler. I want to show you a few amazing statements. Verse 16, for by him, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. The Bible doesn't say some things were created by him. No, it says all things, all things were created through him and for him. You can see also John's gospel, chapter one, verse three, to get that same idea. The passage says all things were created by Jesus. And then it goes on into great detail about his creation. Things in heaven, what does that mean? Everything in the heavens were created by Jesus and for Jesus. In the Bible, we can see that heaven is a term used to describe outer space. In the Bible, we can also see that heaven is a term used to describe the atmosphere. In the Bible, we can also see that heaven is a term to describe the place where God resides. So heaven is used in three ways in the Bible, outer space, the atmosphere, and where God resides. I believe since the earth is mentioned in the next verse, this use of heaven is referring to outer space and the location where God resides. Everything in the heavens where God resides, everything in the atmosphere, everything in outer space, all created by Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus holds them together. It was by Jesus that the planets and the stars were created. Last week, they were talking about some type of meteor shower or something like that happening in our viewpoint. If you went outside 11 p.m., which I didn't, that's past my bedtime. Um, if you went outside at 11 p.m., supposedly you could see these shooting stars or something like that. Mercedes told me, can you wake me up at 11 so I can go out and look? I said, no. But I was jogging one morning, and you could see a shooting star. Everything you see all the beautiful stars, every planet, how amazing all of that is created by Jesus and for Jesus. Take some time and Google pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and look how amazing that is. Or from the, there's a new even space telescope out in outer space, just put out there, just the web I think is called. And just amazing pictures created by Jesus and for Jesus. A lot of them we can't see with the naked eye, but they are there. They're out there worshiping Jesus, giving praise to Jesus. They even have sound effects, pulsar stars do. And they're worshiping Jesus. They are giving praise to Jesus. Jesus created everything on earth. This includes every material. Then the passage says that this includes the visible and the invisible. What is the invisible? Well, I would guess the passage is talking about the air we breathe, the radiation we don't see, and even the spiritual realm. One theologian, R.C. Sproul, said there is no maverick molecule. Every molecule, everything out there created by Jesus and for Jesus and controlled by Jesus. If there's one maverick molecule, it could go astray and alter God's plan. Not gonna happen. God is in control. Uh, Dallas Willard, the philosopher, said Jesus is the master of molecules. I think that's the quote that he said. Jesus created everything visible and invisible. Jesus created the angels. Lastly, the passage talks about the thrones, the powers, the rulers, and the authorities. These were created through Jesus, but also for him. This is a strong passage. Think about it. Colossians, this little epistle of Colossians, was written around AD 60, about 27 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, most of you probably know 
that during this time period, Rome was in charge. And Rome ruled with an iron fist. Paul is writing this from prison. It's called one of his prison epistles. But even though Rome was in charge and even though Paul was in prison, Paul is saying, actually, Jesus is in charge. Paul is saying, it may appear that Rome is in in charge, but they're really not. Jesus is in charge. I mean, just consider Luke chapter two. In Luke chapter two, you have three kings. You have Herod, you have um, Caesar Augustus, and you have Jesus at Jesus' birth. And God uses a census to fulfill prophecy and get Jesus born in Bethlehem. Jesus is in charge. Caesar Augustus might've thought it was a good idea to have a census, but God had it. God was in control. God is in charge. Paul is saying, it may appear as if Rome was in charge, but Jesus is actually in charge. All of these rulers were created by Jesus and for Jesus. This statement by Paul is a very political statement, but this statement by Paul should be very encouraging for us today, just like it was for them. God is in charge. Jesus is in charge. If Jesus is the creator, he's the king. He is the ruler. He's in charge. Jesus is is reigning. In Colossians chapter two, verse 15, just the next chapter, it reads, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Again, political imagery, political imagery. This carries the idea that when Jesus hung on the cross and took God's wrath on him for our sins, he conquered the devil. Jesus conquered the spiritual forces of evil. He triumphed over the spiritual forces of evil. He put them to open shame. Since the beginning, sin has had its way and its consequences, but Jesus took the punishment, restoring a right relationship between us and God. We still have secular rulers who are anti-God as they did in the first century, but this gives the image of Jesus. Colossians 2.15 gives the image of Jesus going through a battlefield and taking the weapons away. Now, this could be literal in a spiritual way or a prophetic way. Someday in the future, every authority will bow to Jesus. Currently, Jesus is reigning spiritually. He is reigning spiritually, interceding for us. That doesn't mean he's not controlling the powers and earthly rulers. He is. Even right now, it may appear that certain governments are reigning. And although there are certain spiritual forces, even demonic forces at work, God will make things right. Jesus is in charge. Then verse 17 even says that all things hold together by Jesus. Think about this for a second. If Jesus stopped being in control, creation would fall apart. Now, in reality, it would only take a split second. If Jesus stopped being in control... Creation would fall apart. If if, if Jesus stopped being in control, we wouldn't know it. We would cease to exist before you could even think because he is holding everything together. And and I tried to think of a good image of this. And the the best image I could think of is this water is in this picture, right? The picture 
plastic is holding the water together, right? And just like the pitcher is holding the water together, Jesus is holding everything together. Jesus is holding the cosmos together. Jesus is holding creation together. If I pour the water out, the pitcher is no longer holding the water together. Now, all analogies fail, and this one does too, because now it's in another pitcher, right? Because I don't want to make a mess. But the pitchers are holding the water together. And if, if you just pour it out, or if I just kind of took it and just kind of threw it, the water's going to seem like, you know, it has nothing holding it together until it lands on another surface, meeting Blaine and Barb and, and Bobby and Vicky and the people on the front row. And that'd be a privilege of sitting in the front row today, but we won't do that. Jesus is holding all creation together. He is in charge. Look at verse 18. Amen. Thank you, Don. I appreciate you saying that. Look at verse 18, Colossians 1:18. And then it says, Jesus is the head of the church. This means that we are his church. We are not my church or anyone else's church, but Jesus's church. We must be following his lead. We seek his lead through prayer and correct understanding of his word. So you can see from Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, that Jesus is in control. And if he is in control, this means that Jesus is also the ruler and the king. He's in heaven interceding for us. He is in control. He is the ruler and the king. That's Jesus. But I wanna look at another passage about Jesus reigning. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. But of the Son, capital S, this is referring to Jesus, because Hebrews is all about Jesus. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, that's talking about Jesus, is forever and ever, is everlasting. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews 1.8 is actually a quote from Psalm 45.6. And Psalm 45.6 says this about God the Father. But you may recall that two weeks ago, we showed from the scriptures that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. So when God's throne is forever and ever, Jesus' throne is also forever and ever. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. His throne is forever and ever. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, which I just mentioned. How many of us wanna serve a king that will be overthrown tomorrow? We don't, do we? Just like we don't wanna root for a football team that loses, like the Steelers. They're just not a good team this year, okay? I'll acknowledge it. I said it, you heard it first from me. You don't wanna serve a king that's gonna be overthrown tomorrow. How many of us want to serve a king that's going to be overthrown in 10 years? You, you generally don't. Our king, his kingdom is everlasting. There's an ironic story in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar is the king of mighty Babylon. And he's having this gluttonous feast, which was likely a drunken orgy. Note, this is the king of the mighty Babylon. And Babylon was a world empire at this time. In fact, Babylon at this time, their walls around the city, every city had these big walls, their walls around the city were so big and so wide, two chariots could ride side by side on the top of the walls around the city. This is Babylon. And he's having this drunken feast. 
And during that feast, there's mysterious handwriting on the wall, which Daniel interprets in verses 25 through 28 of Daniel 5. The writing said, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. The English Standard Bible has a note which says, Belshazzar's feast is exposed as the ultimate act of folly. He was feasting on the brink of the grave and either did not know this danger or refused to acknowledge it. While he is feasting, his kingdom is conquered. How ironic. God is the real king. Jesus is the real king. Even with the handwriting on the wall, that is declared. God is in charge. God has Persia that very night conquer Babylon. They did it by damming up the river, heading into Babylon upstream, making it dry, going in to Babylon on the riverbed and conquering the city, conquering this major world empire. And Persia conquers Babylon. And guess what? Persia fulfills prophecy, sending the Israelites back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. It's all prophetic. God is in charge. Our Jesus' kingdom will not be conquered. Jesus is the king that will never be overthrown. Jesus will never be overthrown. His kingdom will not end. And Jesus is interceding. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. This passage tells us that Jesus is our mediator. As our mediator, that means that Jesus is interceding for us. Another passage that supports this is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, which reads... But he holds his priesthood permanently. He, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, this is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near, God, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25 is about Jesus as our great high priest. As our great high priest, he holds that priesthood forever. The human priests, they die, and they need another one. They need another one. Jesus is priesthood. Jesus is in heaven, interceding for us as our great high priest. He is forever covering our sins. Actually, later in Hebrews 10, it shows that Jesus made the sacrifice for our sins once for all. But he's still mediating for us. How do we feel about that? Is Jesus our king? Have we surrendered everything to him? You know, sometimes we don't do a job fully. Maybe you've had children who are supposed to clean their room, so you go up and the room looks clean until you open the closet. <laughs> and everything falls on you or something like that. Sometimes we do this with our relationship with Christ. We don't surrender everything to him. Instead, we hide things. In this case, you're not allowing him to be the king of your life. This is important for all of us. If we don't if you're here and you don't know Christ, submit, surrender to him today. If you, do not, if you do know Christ, continue to surrender everything to him. 
I love listening to and reading Tim Keller's sermons. Tim Keller went home to be with the Lord earlier this year. And one thing he pointed out, which was just magnificent to New Yorkers, because he was ministering in New York City in the late 80s, early 90s, through a few years ago. And, and, and he would talk to these people from New York and they would say, look, a lot of them are very, very secular and a lot of them are very intellectual. And, he, and they would say, we, we would love to believe in Jesus but then I have to surrender this or this, that. You know, then I have to surrender something. And maybe, maybe I'm not ready to surrender that. And he pointed out, look, if Jesus is who he says he is, everything else falls in line. If Jesus really is God in the flesh, if God really took, took on humanity, if God really became a human being to live a righteous life and die on the cross, for Jesus, that's God in the flesh. Everything else falls in line. The surrender falls in line. In other words, in other words there's an incongruity, an incongruity, an inconsistency We're saying Jesus is God in the flesh and we believe that he's God in the flesh and we believe he's the Lord and Savior but questioning him on other things. Then he's really not Lord and Savior. Either he is or he isn't. If he's God in the flesh, if he's Lord and Savior, he is Lord and Savior. We don't have a right to question him on, on, on his teachings on marriage and, and money and everything else he talks about. He's God. Everything else falls in line. He's judge. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's pure. He's our substitute for our sins. Yes, Jesus came as a baby, but he no longer is a baby. Yes, Jesus worked as a carpenter, but he no longer is a carpenter. Yes, Jesus walked with his disciples, but not anymore. Yes, Jesus hung on the cross, but he died and he rose again. Jesus is no longer dead. He is reigning with God in heaven. I read this from a Tim Keller message uh, just last night. Uh, he wrote this. He said, it's like that song they sang in the Live Aid concert in 1985. I think many of you would remember that Live Aid concert in 1985. These musicians came together and they sang this song and they said, we are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. And Tim Keller wrote, that's what most people think the meaning of Christmas is. But after the Live Aid concert in 1985, Bob Dylan he was one of all those rock stars who were singing, said to the press he was very uncomfortable singing a song like that. Somebody said to Bob Dylan, why were you uncomfortable? He said, I'll tell you why. Because man cannot save himself. So we look today and to Bob Dylan for the true meaning of Christmas because he got it right. The Bible says Jesus Christ came because we cannot save ourselves. There's a problem. He had to do something about it. The way Christmas is expounded in public anymore is that Christmas means if we work hard, we can save ourselves. And Bob Dylan was right. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners need to be reconciled. I have a picture, and Ken's gonna put it up, I hope. You may not be able to see it super well, but we'll give it a go. I did, I think. There we go. Well, I unmuted one of the, you can see it on that one. It's called Checkmate. It's a painting. If you know anything about the game of chess, you know it all comes down to when the king on either side can move no more. Checkmate. Once the king is trapped, the winning side declares checkmate and the game is over. There's a painting. It once hung in the Louvre Museum in Paris, painted by Frederick Moritz, uh, Frederick Moritz August Reich, actually. Today, the painting is popularly known as Checkmate. 
It's now in private hands, having been sold in a, in a Christie's auction in 1999. The painting, as you can see, depicts two chess players. One is Satan, who appears, who appears arrogantly confident. The other player is a man who looks forlorn. If Satan wins, he wins a man's soul. You can view more of the creepy details. According to legend and probably fact, the story goes like this. A chess grandmaster came upon this intriguing painting in the Louvre Museum, alongside other famous art, such as the Mona Lisa. The grandmaster stared a long time at the chessboard in the painting and finally noticed something surprising. The typical interpretation of the painting was incorrect. The typical interpretation is that the devil had checkmated his opponent. But this grandmaster realized it's incorrect. Though the devil seemed to be the obvious victor, he was in fact not winning. The man who thought he was losing was actually winning. According to the arrangement of the pieces left on the chessboard, his king had one more move. This fateful move would make the human winner, the human being the winner. The grandmaster called the curator and determined that the title checkmate did not, fit, did not fit the scene because the forlorn looking player actually had the ability to defeat his opponent, though he didn't realize it yet. His king had one more move. The devil did not win in the painting. Now think about the spiritual implications of this painting about what the grandmaster discovered. Repeatedly in scripture, God assures his people that there is always a way of escaping situations that seem hopeless at that time. When the people of Judah were deported to Babylon because of their sinfulness, God revealed that a future day of release would come. Just as God provided water for the Israelites in the desert, he would also provide for them on their long trek homeward. A little boy in John chapter six only had two fish and a few loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. It looked like checkmate, but our king had another move left. They collected 12 baskets of leftover food after the meal was served. In the Old Testament, Daniel was thrown into a den of lions, of hungry lions. It looked like checkmate, but our king had another move left and Daniel remained safe. In John chapter eight, it looked like checkmate for a woman about to be killed by angry men with stones. But Jesus told the woman to go and not sin anymore. On Good Friday, the criminal next to Jesus hung on the cross, thought it was the end, yet he repented. And why Jesus say, today you'll be with me in paradise. So often in life, we consider the world to be a mess with war, violence, unemployment, struggling marriages, depression, isolation, and more, we can easily become disillusioned. People begin to feel lost. We, we look for direction, but often end up on the wrong path. It looks like checkmate, doesn't it? But we need not fear. The game is not over. Our creator God still has one more move left. Our lives and future are in God's hands. The Lord is the only king who can never be defeated. Jesus is on his throne and we can trust him. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you, Lord God, for the just privileged opportunity to declare your word to your people here at Bethel Friends. 
What a privilege it is to proclaim the gospel, to talk about the gospel. What a privilege it is to celebrate the gospel. What a privilege it is to worship you, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord God, I know that many times we do think, we perceive it seems like everything is coming, everything is collapsing for various reasons. But I pray, Lord God, you would encourage all of us and remind all of us that you are still on your throne. And even though it seems like the devil has us in checkmate, it's not true. You are in control. You are always in control. And Lord God, I know that when Jesus was born in the, as a baby, God in the flesh, when you were born as a baby, God in the flesh, and Herod slaughtered the babies in Matthew chapter two, the devil might've thought he won. And Lord God, I'm sure that many times in your life, the devil thought he was winning. And the crucifixion, the devil probably thought he was winning, but he didn't and he never will. You rose again, you rose victoriously. Up from the grave, you arose. You ascended into heaven. You're reigning on our behalf. You're interceding on our behalf. You give us eternal life in you. You give us abundant life in you. Lord God, I pray that you would help us serving you this week. And for those of us gathered here who don't know you, may today be the day to repent and turn their life over to you. May today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe in you, the way, the truth, and the life, the one and only savior. Trust in you and commit to you. May today be the day to surrender to you. Lord God, we pray for physical felt needs and that's important. But what's most important is that we know you as Lord and Savior, that we are surrendered. And for those of us that do know you, give us opportunities to testify about that this week, please. Lord God, you know who needs encouraged. You know who needs help this week. I pray that everyone here would leave knowing you and being encouraged by you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen.